From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. We've all seen an ambulance responding to the scene of an accident or a medical emergency. Paramedics respond when there is a need for quick medical treatment and transport to a medical facility. The reasons an ambulance is called can range from shortness of breath or heart attack to trauma caused by a serious accident. On today's Mayo Clinic radio program, we'll learn more about the life of a paramedic from a woman who is on the job. Also on the program, the latest information about direct-to-consumer genetic testing and the recent rise in sexually transmitted infections. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, you know, after all of my years working in the emergency room, you'd think that that an ambulance and sirens and those flashing lights wouldn't bother me. But you know, it still does. It does. It does. I know I see an ambulance and my heart rate goes up and I'm sure my <laughs> blood pressure goes up. And I guess it's because you sort of know what might be inside and, and, the, and the tragedy True. that might be inside. So the question is, and I'm sure a lot of people ask, who's in that ambulance besides the victim and what are they doing? Emergency medical technicians or EMTs and paramedics. That's who's in there, Tom. <laughs> Thank you very much. They provide first line medical or emergency care for sick and injured people while they're being transported to the hospital for care. They typically operate in teams with one person serving as an emergency vehicle operator, the driver, while the other gives life-saving emergency care to the patient while they are on their way to the hospital. Recently, a Mayo Clinic paramedic was honored in the nation's capital for her work as an emergency responder. Angela Jarrett received the Stars of Life Award from the American Ambulance Association. She's with us today. Here to discuss the life of a paramedic is Angie Jarrett herself. Welcome to the program. It's nice to meet you, Angie. Thank you for having me. Angela, great to see you. You know, the, the, the lights are flashing, the, the siren is on, uh, you're on a code three. What's going on in there? Well, it can be a, an array of different things. Start to finish from a call for service from the time that it comes in, um, it comes into what we call PSAP, or a primary service answering point. And uh, the 911 dispatcher takes the call. And here at Mayo, we have emergency medical dispatchers. So they are trained in emergency medical services, as well as a lot of them are EMTs as well. And so they'll take the call and kind of triage through the call and then dispatch the ambulance to where it needs to go. And then they will dictate whether it's a... An emergency run, whether we go lights and siren and respond to the call or if we should drive routine. And then once we get to the call, you're right, it's two of us. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's either a paramedic, paramedic or paramedic EMT. Tell me again, what's the difference between the two? So an EMT or emergency medical technician is it's a 160-hour course. Okay. And then it's a classroom course, as well as at the end of the classroom, we have to take what um, we could refer to as our boards, and it's the National Registry exam. Okay. So that's done at a Pearson View Test Center. And then we also take a practical exam. In order to be an EMT in Minnesota, you have to take these National Registry boards. To be a paramedic, paramedics have to already be an EMT to get accepted into a paramedic program such as the Mayo paramedic program. Uh, you have to have your EMT, and then that's a two-year program. Okay. So it's an associate degree. To be so, so the the PMT uh, the is is better trained. The paramedic is more well trained than the EMT. So is is the EMT usually driving than the paramedic and back, or not necessarily? It, 
it's it's if there's advanced life support that needs to be provided, um, the paramedic will transport in the back. So paramedics can perform interventions such as um, push IV medications, um, like cardioversion, um, pacing, um, more advanced techniques, where the EMT is limited to um, being able to administer oxygen, some um, medications like albuterol nebulizers, EpiPens, um, but anything more advanced related cardiac, for example, and we can interpret cardiac rhythms and, and treat those. So You said cardioversion? What does that mean? Yeah. So what that means is so like if a patient's heart, they're conscious and awake and their heart is beating way too fast than what it should be, um, we can actually uh, ad- administer an electric shock to try to convert that back to a normal rhythm. So. So there's a lot of paramedics uh, in the whole country, and you, even though you don't want to talk about it, are the best. (laughs) You are the best paramedic because you won the Stars of Life Award. How did that come about? So I was nominated um, by one of my peers um, for some of the work that I've done um, over my career in EMS. Um, I'm very involved with rural EMS and, and volunteer EMS as well, which is predominantly what we have in rural Minnesota. And so um, right now I work at the site of Plainview, um, which is a town of about 3,200 people just northeast of here. And um, they had a really struggling ambulance service. And uh, a couple of years ago, I took on the role there. And uh, we worked on recruiting volunteers, which is pretty difficult nationwide right now. And uh, um, providing education. We use our Mayo Clinic um, education that we receive here at Gold Cross um, and provide that to the EMTs in Plainview. And so it helped with our recruitment. We're providing a higher level of care that way. And uh, and we're a pretty successful, striving service today. And so your coworker thought that you deserved to win the Stars of Life Award. Yes, evidently. Um, I uh, feel I was just doing what I was hired to do mm-hmm. and uh we went from nine active people to 30 so oh in in the city of yeah. plainview yeah so but all of those people who are in the ambulance volunteer or otherwise have been through a, a training program 160 hours you said yep. 160 hours is the classroom portion and then there's on the job training too so um, it teaches you the fundamentals of being an emt but when you're actually in the back of the ambulance, um, there's no textbook. You can't just follow it. Every patient is so different um, that you have to uh, use critical thinking, if you would, if critical thinking to, to decipher in the moment what needs to be done. Do you still go out, go out on calls? I do. Tell us about one of the most exciting ones you've been on lately. I guess they're all so different. Um, truly, I look at it as... People are calling us on the worst day of their life. This is no matter if it's a hangnail, and I like to think that's maybe not the worst day, or um, they feel like they're going to die. It's it, They're all rewarding and gratifying, I well, guess. Well, but you said before we got started that uh, as you were preparing to come down here for our interview, uh, somebody called in. There's a, Someone was going into labor. That's an exciting yeah. time to be working as an EMT. Yes, yes. And I actually, in my 16 years, have never delivered a baby. Um, I kind of live in a little side story. My husband was a police officer for 12 years, and he's delivered six babies. <laughs> and I would come after him in the ambulance in time to catch that placenta. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> well, you stick you missed around. That, right? yeah. Yes, <laughs> yes, <laughs> I'm in his shadows, but uh, yeah. So, <laughs> so stick around. You'll, I'm sure it will happen. Yeah, yeah. Now, who is it that decides uh, when the helicopter ought to go for a, a traffic accident? Yeah, so we have at Mayo Clinic, we have what we call auto launch criteria. And so when that call comes in, so if a traffic crash, for example, if um, we know there's an ejection or it's at high rates of speed, um, when that dispatcher gets that call for service, then they will automatically call for the helicopter to come. And so sometimes we don't need them once we get on scene, but we try to get them rolling right away so that um, time is really of the essence, especially with trauma patients. We need to get them to that definitive care. Sometimes it's an operating room, too. You know, I don't know whether you've noticed this, Tracy, but it seems to me like the ambulance, uh, police, uh, all of these protective services seem to drive more sanely than they used to. <laughs> I think uh, there was a time when you sort of said, you know, they're going to have an accident on the way to the hospital. But <laughs> I have noticed that you've slowed down. You're very careful at intersections. And that was a, that there's sort of a learning curve there, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. And it, it kind of circling back to that emergency medical dispatcher, um, and them dictating of whether we're going to respond emergency, excuse me, emergently or not, um, is based on what comes in. If, if, is this truly something that we need to go lights and siren to, or is the better, is the public better served by us going routine and having a safer response? And that's really been at the forefront is safety all the time. We're always reevaluating um, our safety measures, so you won't see us transporting a lot lights and siren or going out a lot lights and siren anymore. Yeah, that's good. Mm -hmm. That keeps my blood pressure down, too. <laughs> yes, well, and ours, too, really. Yeah, I mean, because exactly. it only adds to that stress. All right, we are talking with Angela Jarrett. She's a uh, paramedic and recently was awarded the Stars of Life Award in Washington, D.C. We want to hear more about that, and we'll talk more about being a paramedic after the short break. When we come back, we'll discuss Angela's role in mentoring other paramedics and being an advocate for the profession. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCray. And we are with a paramedic. And she's not just a paramedic. She's the winner of the Stars of Life Award, <laughs> which was presented in Washington, D.C. How long ago, Angela? Uh, two weeks ago. Oh, good. You're fresh <laughs> off yep, the award. just came back. Did, did you get a trophy or a plaque, or did you bring it? Yeah, we uh, got uh, medals to wear around our necks, and then I did not bring it with today. <laughs> and uh, also a shadow box um, with a plaque inside of it to keep too. Very yeah, nice. Pretty cool. Now, one of the things that you wanted to talk about when uh, we reached out to you and said, do you want to come in and talk about being a paramedic is you want to talk about getting others involved in being paramedics. And so that was a trade. We said, fine, deal. You can tell us about that. <laughs> and is it really that critical that the shortage of EMTs and paramedics? Yes, absolutely. It is. And not just for us in the Rochester area and rural Minnesota, but nationwide. Uh, the education requirements have increased for EMTs as well. It used to be back in the 70s and 80s, even the early 90s, you would just sign up and join your local ambulance service, and you would run With on little or no training. Yep. Mm -hmm. Basic first aid, essentially, and um, the term ambulance driver, um, that's really what we did. And today, it isn't what we do. We are clinicians, and we provide patient care. And so um, with that comes a lot of education additional training. Um, they just lowered our education requirements. We had to have 72 hours of continuing ed every two years to recertify, wow. which is a lot. Wow. A lot. And they just um, dropped that down to 48. Um, but it's very specific in every category that we have to have continuing ed in. So even, like you said, the small towns, um, I, I 
was saying that in my hometown in South Dakota, it's you know less than 2,000 people, and there is always a shortage. I think there is just a standing ad in my hometown paper, please consider being an EMT. So how is it that uh, you are encouraging people to do that, especially in the rural areas of the country? Yeah, and a lot of it's through through education and, and getting ourselves out there. I mean, we literally went knocking door to door, handing out flyers, talking to people, telling them, this is what we do, this is what we're here for. And I, you just get there's some people that just aren't made for that. They're mm-hmm. not cut out for it. You know, when sure. we're running... Well, it makes them sick. Yeah, I, yeah, I understand that. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And then there's others that say, I, I want to help in my community. I just don't know how. Um, so we do try to get out there and offer this. Um, yeah, and there's certainly I, a lot of job security in doing this, right? I mean, if there's a, if there's a huge shortage. Uh, so the hours. I mean, tell us about the hours. Yeah, so for example, um, the site that I serve is Plainview. Um, we uh, requ- have a minimum hour requirement that... We, they have to offer 80 hours over a two-month period. Um, that can be in any duration, um, but they have to offer those amount. And so um, you can work 24 hours straight. You could work 12 hours straight. You could work five hours straight. For us here in Rochester at Gold Cross, we all have set schedules. And so we work 12-hour shifts and do three 12-hour shifts um, a week. Do you uh, go and speak with students, like uh, kids that are just maybe interested in health care? I mean, is that something that you do as well? Yeah, that is a big part of the outreach as well. Um, I personally have gone to some of the local high schools and talked during their health care, um, excuse me, their career days at school and explained this is what we do. It's it's not always blood and guts and it's not <laughs> always, you know, the the fun, the hip, the, the awesomeness, but sometimes it's about just being with someone and being able to provide that first-on-scene care that that they need. Does the uh, dispatcher let you know whether it's a code one, two, or three? Do you still use codes? Yeah. So we we here at Mayo Clinic now use priority numbers. Okay. So we'll say priority one, priority two, or priority three. And so yeah, we'll say we drove in code three, um, and that infers that we drove lights and siren the whole way. Um, priority one means yep, we need to get there right away. Use lights and siren. Where priority two means yeah, we need to dedicate right away, but maybe let's go routine and and have a safer response that that way. And then the priority three is maybe something that's been scheduled ahead of time. Has the ambulance you were riding in or driving ever been in an accident? Yes. <laughs> were you driving the way that you just responded? I, I was. Um, I I was uh, driving um, and my partner and I had just signed on for, for our shift for the morning. And um, a car in front of us decided to make a quick U-turn in between the concrete barrier. So we were able to come to a stop, but the car behind us oh. didn't. And hit you. Yeah, and they hit us, and, and fortunately we were okay, but uh, we were able to render aid to them and, and help them. Then. I oh, guess. So th- yeah. There's going to be a yeah. right <laughs> at least. Yeah. It's a good situation. The silver lining, I guess, that we could help them, but uh, yeah, so that was the one. So time. your ambulance wasn't disabled, and you could... You could drive the people that were hurt we, in the car. We behind. couldn't drive it. It wasn't drivable, but oh we gosh. were okay enough that we got out and were able to help them right away then, too. Does everyone that starts off as an EMT become a paramedic, or do you have some people that just remain EMTs and that's all the further they want to go? That's a really great question. And EMT right now, too, is really a gateway to a lot of other healthcare careers. Uh, we get a lot of recruitment through like nursing programs, um, sometimes people that are pre med. Um, going into the PA program, we'll say, I took my EMT, 
um, can can I use it here as a job? And so um, not everyone goes on to be a, become a paramedic. Um, at Mayo Clinic, we have a, a, a paramedic program um, that's been very successful, and uh, we try to encourage people to go that way, but sometimes they choose not to. So it can be a stepping stone to a, dirif- a different kind of healthcare career. Absolutely. You ever get bored? Never. Really? Never. So if you are not if you're not on a call, what are you doing? So for me, my role is I'm an assistant supervisor, so I run the Plainview site. And so there's billing that needs to get done. There's um, constant, you know, checking of supplies, um, education, training. We're always doing something. In our downtime, we're, you know, pulling out the mannequins and practicing and, and preparing for what that next call might be. How long does it take you from the time that the call comes in that you're on the road? Well, uh, we like to say within a minute. That's our goal, with that we are out the door. Um, here in Rochester um, and all, all the Mayo uh, Clinic sites, uh, we have a one-minute, within one minute we're rolling. Yeah, that's pretty good. It's so amazing. it's a great career. You can be an EMT or a uh, paramedic, and you can go from there and do lots of other different things, be a nurse. I know a lot of, of medical students who uh, started, worked in the summer as an EMT, and they said it was a great experience. Yeah, it really is, and it teaches you leadership. Um, when it's us in the field, there's two of us. It's We have decisions that need to be made, and uh, and we're able to do that. And um, the other thing that I didn't mention before, too, is the community paramedic, which is kind of a new and upcoming thing. Um, it just We just passed a bill, too, and the governor signed it that in August we'll be able to have community EMTs as well. And these are people that are kind of like, um, how would you describe it, like uh, community health does, but mm-hmm. more. And so, when, like, for example, if a patient's discharged from the hospital, comes home, and let's say they live alone, and maybe needs that extra help, but the goal is to not get them readmitted to the hospital. So we want to prevent them from needing to be readmitted. So what can we do? Um, a lot of times diabetics, for example, to, um, may need to take a lot of ambulance rides. And um, we unfortunately don't have a frequent flyer program for them. <laughs> um, so the goal is to let's keep you at home. Let's see. Let's get you involved in your health care. And uh, um, what can we do to keep you here, to keep you healthy? And uh, and so that's something that I think that is kind of the future of EMS as well that we're going to see more of, too. Good. Well, you and your colleagues do a lot of good for a lot of uh, people, and we're so glad to have you on the program. Award-winning paramedic Angela Jarrett, thanks for being with us. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> she just doesn't like that accolade, I'm telling you. <laughs> good for you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll learn about direct-to-consumer genetic testing and later on the program, the disturbing rise in sexually transmitted infections. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. Sometimes it's hard to get off the couch and exercise. The important thing is to do something and also to not permit what you cannot do or what you're afraid of doing to interfere with what you can do. So, Dr. Michael Joyner has six tips to help get you moving more every day. Number one, again, start with what you can do. Whether it's walking, riding the bike, aerobic exercise in the pool. Number two, don't think you have to run a marathon or be an elite athlete. People start to see benefits in terms of their health with as little as 10 or 15 minutes a day. Number three, build exercise into your day. Take the stairs or park in the back of the parking lot. Number four, schedule exercise into your day as if it were an appointment. 
Number five, get a workout buddy. And number six, which is key. Don't set unrealistic goals and get into a cycle of, I'm not meeting my goals, I'm a failure, therefore I stop. And remember, anytime you exercise at any level, you're doing something good for your health. And in other news, yes, ultraviolet or UVI protection matters. UV radiation from the sun can damage not only the skin of your eyelid, but also the cornea, lens, and other parts of the eye. UV exposure also contributes to the development of certain types of cataracts, gross on the eye, and possibly macular degeneration. So to protect your eyes, look for sunglasses that block 99 to 100% of both UVA and UVB rays, screen out 75 to 90 90% of visible light have lenses that are perfectly matched in color and free of distortions and imperfections have lenses that are gray for proper recognition. And the color and degree of darkness sunglasses provide has nothing to do with the sunglasses' ability to block UV rays. Also, opt for wraparound sunglasses or close-fitting sunglasses with wide lenses that protect your eyes from every angle. Some contact lenses also offer UV protection but should be worn in combination with sunglasses to maximize protection. Let's talk about those pesky mosquitoes. Can they carry more than one disease? A recent study suggests mosquitoes can infect people with the Zika virus and chikungunya virus in a single bite. Dr. Patish Tosh, an infectious diseases specialist at Mayo Clinic, says the mosquitoes that carry yellow fever can also carry other viral diseases. So he says it's certainly possible to get more than one. He says it's important for people when they're going outside, especially in heavily wooded areas, to use protection. Use 25% DEET as an insect repellent, wear long sleeve clothing and protective clothing. Do what you can to prevent tick bites and also mosquito bites. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, recently the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, well, we all know that is the FDA, they approved a test called 23andMe. It's a personal genetic test for some diseases that can be done in the comfort of your own home. Now, the FDA did caution consumers that these types of tests, they can tell you what your risk is for certain diseases mm-hmm. based on your genes, but it won't give you a diagnosis. It won't tell you, for example, if you've got something like Alzheimer's or Parkinson's. So is this the future of genetics, and how good is this new test? Here to discuss direct-to-consumer genetic testing is Dr. Matthew Ferber. Dr. Ferber is a clinical molecular geneticist and director of Mayo's Clinical Genome Sequencing Laboratory. Welcome to the program, Dr. Ferber. It's nice to meet you. Happy to be here. Whew, you got a long title. <laughs> hey, you know what? You, you work in a really exciting field, don't you? I, I really feel lucky to be there, yes. And so tell us about this new test, 23andMe, because we're seeing it everywhere. Yeah, so I think the, the really compelling uh, descriptor of this test is that you can do it at home. Most genetic tests up to this date have really depended upon taking a blood sample or maybe uh, a piece of your skin in order to gather the DNA required to do the testing. This type of test can be done with just a simple uh, a simple swab of the cheek or a spit tube. And matter of fact, for the 23andMe test, that's exactly what they do is they just collect a little bit of saliva within a tube and off to the laboratory it goes. How reliable is something that is just that simple? Yeah, the analytical performance of the test is just as high as any clinical laboratory testing wow. facility. So the accuracy has been fully documented. 
Uh, and what does it tell you? The types of things that the test can tell you are broken down into a wide range of what I like to call infotainment on one side. You perhaps <laughs> have heard things like, uh, how related are you to Neanderthal? Hey, I'm right? Scottish. Yeah, there you go. It's about the same thing, right? Okay. Uh, all the way up to whether or not you are a carrier for an autosomal recessive condition. And this might be important to you if you're planning a, a family in the, in the near future. And then just recently, with the new FDA approval, it can tell you information about whether or not you're at risk for very specific, albeit limited, but specific health conditions. Like? Uh, like cardiovascular disease, uh, your risk for having uh, venous thromboembolism, uh, things of blood that clot. nature. Blood clot, exactly. Uh, it's not going to tell you... Uh, some of the the more uh, critical conditions like your risk for developing a hereditary cancer syndrome or something like that. That type of testing is still most appropriately handled in the more routine clinical diagnostic laboratory. In a really short amount of time, we have gone from here's what's going to be possible to, hey, you've got this possibility of this disease, you who just sent us some saliva. I don't know. Is there any sort of counseling that goes with this? I mean, this could really rock somebody's world. It really could. And I think that's where the FDA has done a really nice job in demanding that these types of consumer products have the appropriate back end, as we like to call it, associated with them as well. And that means if you were to get a potentially alarming result, you're not left out on an island. You actually have a mechanism to interact with the company and then ultimately get referred to genetic counseling services. But what if a person finds that out and doesn't follow through with that? That news could very much change the direction of their life. Oh, absolutely. And it's hard to really address all potential scenarios, but the, the, the help, the availability of help has to be made very clear to the individual. They would have to intentionally not want to pursue help in order to not get the help that they needed. Well, people come at this with so many different angles, I'm sure. I mean, there's all the way from the concern to a curiosity we were speaking with a woman whose daughter is adopted, and yeah. she wants to know more about her health situation. And, and at this point, anyone who's adopted, when they go in, they just can take a pass on all that paperwork because it doesn't mean anything to them. That's right. Yeah. Does this kind of does this help people like that that don't know anything about their genetic history? It really can. It really can. So uh, there's a couple of things that will help. Number one is really just getting your arms around your ethnicity. There are spe- there are specific ethnicities that are at different risks risk levels, base risk levels for certain health conditions. One that pops to mind immediately is the Ashkenazi Jewish population. They have a very high incidence of many autosomal recessive conditions and autosomal dominant conditions, breast cancer being one of them. The hereditary form of breast cancer associated with BRCA1 and 2 mutations, they have two what are known as founder mutations. And so if an individual were adopted and they didn't have this family history information, just getting that ethnicity information in their hands can be extremely empowering. Now, that doesn't happen in every case, but you don't know going into the scenario what your ethnicity is going to be if you were adopted. So you you told us that this test would tell you what your risk of heart disease was or what your risk of having a blood clot was. But give us another example of something that the test, some test result that the patient could or should act on. I think that those are the the right examples. Uh, If we could pull up a menu of the test, we could go through point by point. Um, I don't have the notes in front of me right now in order to do that. But those are the types of results that I think one could and should expect. And if you have 
questions about that result, two things could happen. You can access the 23andMe helpline, or you can take that report into your general physician and say, hey, doc, I had this profile done. I see that I'm at an elevated risk for heart condition. What can I do to lower that risk? And you, of course, I'm sure can name two to three things right off the top of your head that we should all be doing to manage our risks more appropriately. So what's the cost of of the test and who ought to have it done? The test, I think, is around $199. Uh, Their original test was around $99, and that was just for a lot of what I consider to be the infotainment components. When you start to add in the health risks, uh, the, the price does go up. You're getting deeper information, and quite honestly, it's more complicated information to build the test and build the appropriate interpretations and support staff. So it's about $199. Now, who should get it? Right. This is a really good question. Who should get it? If you think you have a medical condition, this is not the test to rule that out. You should go and see your physician and talk to that physician about a medical genetics referral. This is really for the self-explorer, somebody who's really interested in genetics and genomics. They've seen it in the news. They think it's engaging. I'm going to try that just so I can kind of educate myself a little bit, raise my genomics literacy, if you will. That's the type of person that I would recommend having a test like 23andMe. So 23andMe is a product that people can find out in the marketplace. But how's Mayo Clinic involved in this? What's happening at the Clinical Genome Sequencing Laboratory? Oh, very good. Uh, I've been waiting for this question. So uh, part of the Center for Individualized Medicine here at the Mayo Clinic is to bring new technologies to the bedside. An intriguing component to the quote-unquote bedside was to reach beyond patients and individuals who are currently sick. So Mayo Clinic began looking at ways we could access the direct-to-consumer market as many as five years ago. At that time, I don't think the the regulatory landscape or the the, the, the external uh, community was ready for a Mayo Clinic branded and type direct-to-consumer product. But over over the years, we really have become more interested and more engaged. And we're currently working uh, in collaboration with a startup company called Helix uh, to develop Mayo's own version of a direct-to-consumer genomic product. Well, I'm going to wait for that one. Well, and that means you get to come back and see us again. Yeah, uh, I would comes. love to. I would love to be able to tell you much more about that product. Very good. All right, everything you wanted to know about about genetic testing for the consumer from clinical molecular geneticist, Dr. Matthew Ferber. Great to have you on the program. Thanks for being here. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. We'll take a short break, but when we come back, we'll discuss the recent alarming rise in sexually transmitted infections. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCray. Tracy, according to the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, there will be an estimated 20 million new sexually transmitted infections in the United States this year. Mm-hmm. Rates of chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis, three of the most common STIs. You know, it's interesting. They call them STIs now. We used to call them STDs. Hmm. But they have increased in the past two years. Well, all of these diseases are treatable with antibiotics, most cases continue to go undiagnosed, which can cause infertility and other problems. Here to discuss is Mayo Clinic Infectious Disease Specialist, Dr. Pratish Tosh. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Tosh. Hey, thank you for having me. 
Dr. Tosh, uh, good to have you here. And and uh, the first question is, with all of the sex education that presumably our children are getting, even as early as elementary school and middle school, about sexually transmitted diseases and how to prevent them, why is it that there's been such a significant increase in STIs in the past couple of years? And there's a lot of things that people are looking at as, as possibly causing this. And uh, we saw a large decrease for a long time. Uh, and then suddenly we're seeing more and more, especially the ones you talked about, so gonorrhea, chlamydia, uh, syphilis, which are reportable. Um, and there's a lot of conjecture as far as why is this happening. And we don't have a, a great uh, single answer, but there's a few things that people are, are postulating. Um, one is actually related to s- sort of new technologies that are making... There's an app for that? <laughs> there are many apps for that. Um, in that it is a lot easier now for people who are interested in engaging in high-risk sexual activities with uh, multiple partners to find other people interested in engaging in high-risk sexual activities with multiple partners in real time. I was afraid you were going to say that. <laughs> um, well, I also he as he said that our kids, the youth, is that's not that's not the only population where this is increasing, is it? No, it is not. Um, and so we're seeing it in many different populations, and one where in particular is uh, men who have sex with men, um, seeing increases in in these sexually transmitted infections, and some of that is related uh, to just higher incidence in that population, but also. Uh, barriers to seeking care, perceived uh, stigma, wow, and 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 so uh, there's a th- things related uh, to uh, sort of social factors that may make it harder for people to get care or want to present to a provider to get treatment. Mm-hmm. And of course, you're talking about a sexually transmitted infection, where people will try to sort of mentally deny it first, anyway, um, and then th- th- those are the barriers to getting treated. So uh, you mentioned that these diseases are reportable. So what that means that if I'm a primary care physician and I diagnose a case of, of, of syphilis or gonorrhea or chlamydia, I have to report it to the state. So the figures that you have are pretty accurate. They're pretty accurate, uh, and often it's done automatically. If you have a test that flags positive, it's a laboratory test that would then, uh, for example, here our lab laboratory would just automatically let the state health department know. We got another case. We got another case. Yeah. So this is, uh, the measurements are probably pretty good. What about uh, drug resistance? It's one thing that, that more and more uh, people are contracting uh, sexually transmitted infections, but is dr- how big a problem is drug resistance? In other words, the antibiotics that we have don't cure the infection. It's gotten really bad for gonorrhea uh, in the United States and mostly also elsewhere in the world where some first-line agents we would use, ciprofloxacin and these sorts of things, um, are these bugs are now resistant. Um, and is that's that, like ANCEF or, or Keflex? Is that uh, Cipro. 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 Okay. Um, but it's to the point where some um, cephalosporins, like you say ANCEF, so, yeah. uh, some of them, uh, some of these gonorrhea have gotten resistant to sort of low levels of that. And so you now there's only one recommended agent that's a shot of cetriaxone, um, whereas... For gonorrhea. For gonorrhea. you got to have a shot. got to have a shot. That's the only first-line agent. It's uh, resistant to anything you take by mouth. Pretty much, in that there's resistance to low levels or low-level cephalosporin resistance. And so, uh, yeah, so now it's gotten to the point where really you need a shot of cetriaxone. 
Set, what, what do you say? What is it again? Cetriaxone. That's Cetriaxone. A, yeah, in, in antibiotic. Um, One time. Yeah, usually. Yeah. That might be. Is that? Is there thinking that that could be something that would cure people or at least maybe help to slow the spread if people well, found out, oh, man, if I get gonorrhea, I have to get a shot? It hasn't worked so far. Okay. All right. All right. Matter, matter of fact, yeah. you can get a sexually transmitted infection from a toilet seat. Um, so, no. By definition, sexually transmitted would mean that uh, it was transmitted by during sex. Uh, unless that has never stopped our moms from threatening us. Right, like that. right. Um, you know, yeah, you could potentially get a uh, human papillomavirus or a wart virus uh, from a toilet seat, but by and large, you're not going to get something from a toilet seat. I think the last time that you were here, or maybe the time before, you said that uh, in sen- the senior citizen population yeah. is uh, exploding quite a bit. Is that still the case? Yeah. So the nursing home is not what it used to be, huh? That is true. And part of it is that um, when they were, if you will, younger uh, uh, and more sexually active, uh, you know, HIV was not a, a big deal. Was not a thing. People mm-hmm. didn't know about it. And so uh, this idea of safe sex practices sort of skipped that generation. Um, whereas, and then, you know, maybe they, they get divorced or their spouse dies and they start getting into a new relationship and they sort of revert back to their old ways. And so you have spread of sexually transmitted infections because uh, in older people, in part because they may not be used to you, uh, safe sex practices. All right. Uh, we're sort of running out of time, but I have a couple of quick questions sure. that, that our listeners I know want to know. First of all, how do you know, uh, how can you suspect if you have a sexually transmitted disease and then prevention? Okay. Uh, if if there are changes, if it hurts to urinate, if uh, you know there's gen- general you know genital discomfort, either during sex or or you know uh, just normal activities, um, then you should probably get that checked out. Uh, things to do to prevent uh, barrier protection with with uh, sexual activity, so condoms, um, you know, trying to uh, say not engage with multiple sex partners. You know, the big thing is safe sex practices. Back when HIV was everyone's fear, though, in the 80s and 90s, were people a little more cautious back then, and now they're not as much as they were? I mean, that is a thought. I don't know how well that's been proven. It used to be that, that you turn on the TV and it was just AIDS, AIDS, AIDS. And thankfully, we've made a lot of great strides with HIV treatment. And I don't know if that has changed the perception of risk. And you know, that sounds like a very reasonable uh, theory one that I believe, but uh, tough to prove. All right. An update on sexually transmitted infections with an infectious disease expert, Dr. Pratish Tosh. Thanks for being here. Good to have you. Thanks a lot, guys. And that's our program for this week. Find more information on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Tweet your health and medicine questions to hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.